The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This is Classical Ideas with Greg Soden. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. Today is a discussion about writing, working through one's own internal difficulties and judgments, and a behind-the-scenes look at life inside the walls of a Rinzai Zen monastery, walls which my guest has also jumped in order to seek thrills in the outside world. Shozan Jack Hobner is the pen name of a Zen monk whose essays have appeared in The Sun, Tricycle, Buddha Dharma, and the New York Times, as well as in the Best Buddhist Writing series. If you want to immediately check out Shozan's work, I highly recommend his op-ed from the New York Times titled Ode to Leonard Cohen from a Fellow Zen Monk, published in December 2016. Yes, Shozan sat, rock still, next to the Leonard Cohen in the Zendo. Shozan's books have impacted me a lot throughout 2017 and 2018. I sort of went into groupy mode with Shozan during this conversation because I sincerely adore his books. I just couldn't help telling him how much I love his writing. His book, Zen Confidential, Confessions of a Wayward Monk, is the winner of a 2012 Pushcart Prize. His most recent book, Single White Monk, Tales of Death, Failure, and Bad Sex, although not necessarily in that order, is laugh-out-loud hilarious and sob-worthy in nearly every chapter. I cannot begin to explain the emotional overload I experienced reading his two books on airplanes, actually. I read them basically back-to-back without putting them down or taking a break between them. I know this sounds hyperbolic, but his books are awesome. I kind of let my guard down a bit with Shozan because his books brought that out of me, so I hope you will enjoy the conversation more so for it. So without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Shozan Jack Hobner, Rinzai monk and author. Enjoy. I'm here today with Shozan Jack Hobner, and he is an author and monk, and I'm curious if you can just introduce yourself, your lineage, and some of the books that you have put out. Yeah, I um, uh, well, Shozan Jack Hobner is a, a um, gnome de plume, or a, a, a pen name that I use, um, The uh, kind of in the spirit of the old Chinese Zen masters, when they were doing their ink drawings, they uh, would sign their drawings under a different name, kind of their artist's name, indicating that they were taking on a little bit of a different role when they were when they were doing that. So in that spirit, I, I write under a pseudonym also to kind of cover my ass because of all the <laughs> private, personal, oftentimes terribly embarrassing things I try and explore in my writing. Um, uh, but I'm a Rinzai Zen Buddhist priest. Um, I lived at full-time at a monastery in Southern California for a decade and kind of uh, went through the ropes there, first as a student, then as an unsui, which is a beginning monk. Then um, I became a – you take on more responsibility when you're at a monastery. So 
when you first start out, you're just responsible for your own practice. And then right when you get just get comfortable with that, you start having to take on responsibility for the setting that the training takes place, which means also taking responsibility for the people who come to train there uh, in some capacity, take responsibility for them and their training. Um, and then eventually you become a priest, which means, okay, now it's time to go out into the world and, and kind of take your practice and whatever you've learned out into the world. Um, so aside from, uh, being a priest now out in the world, I'm a writer, and I wrote two books, uh, Zen Confidential, Confessions of a Wayward Monk, and Single White Monk, Tales of Death, Failure, and Bad Sex, although not necessarily in that order. Um, and they're both um, just first-person essays about my experience as a monk, kind of my struggles and failings and some of the insights that I that I've had in that process they are both wonderful and you did the audiobook recordings for both of them as well didn't you I did it for um Zen Confidential not yet for Single White Monk nice yeah I was uh I, I listened to your to your voice for Zen Confidential so I had the paper copy of the book and the audiobook in my headphones so I could get your voice telling your own stories, and it was a wild ride. So that is a highly recommended book. Um, <laughs> I loved it. And we'll get into that. So I want you to uh, imagine something here with me for a second. Imagine Good. that you are invited into a high school classroom in Missouri as a guest speaker, like our mutual friend Sato did for 18 years. And you walk into the room, stand in the middle of the room, and look at 60 American high school students, and you are wearing your robes. So the first student raises their hand and says, I'm told that Zen is more of a practice than a religion. What does it mean to practice Zen? What is your response? Good question. Um, I was told that, too, that it's a practice and not a religion, and that appealed to me. Um, and in my th 13 years of, of being a monk and a Zen student and kind of an adventurer on this path, um, it's sustained me. I think on, in, it, it, it's, a, it's a big question. In some ways, on the surface, and maybe even a little bit below the surface, Zen Buddhism looks like a religion. It gives off the whiff of a religion, um, especially because I'm standing up there in my robes. Um, so the word that w w the Japanese use, so, so my teacher came from Japan, um, and the word that the Japanese use is, is not religion, but it's, it's shugyo, um, and it, it, it roughly translates into practice. Um, but it's, but it's, has this sense of, uh, a practice that you're th throwing yourself into completely, um, 100%. So in Zen, you don't have to believe in anything, for starters. There is not that buy-in where you got to sort of uh, put a down payment of your credulity on a certain teaching or belief. Um, it's more of a s series of, of disciplines um, sitting practice, which is zazen, or or what people call meditation, um, kinhin, which is walking meditation, um, orioki style formal meals, which is eating in a meditative manner. So when I was at the monastery, um, the attitude was it was like almost like a spiritual dojo. Um, you're you're training in mindfulness or paying attention. I mean, I'm out of the monastery now. I'm out of the full-time Zen setting. And I'm really, I have this wonderful opportunity to kind of strip the practice down, ask what is Zen fundamentally, because I don't have the structure anymore. And I, really, on, I think it comes down to, when we say it's a practice and not a religion, um, you, means you're manifesting attention in the moment. You're paying total attention to what you're doing. So in in Zen practice, when we do sitting practice, we're 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 assuming a certain posture. Um, 
we're sitting still and we're breathing and we're paying attention to the breath. Um, but, but in Zen practice, it's not just that we're thinking about breathing um, or wondering if we're doing it right. We're, 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 we're actually doing the breathing. So you, you give your attention to the breathing and you hold it there. And what happens when you do that is the sense of separation from yourself and the activity that you're doing dissolves. Um, and, and you have that moment where you're not thinking and maybe you're not even feeling. Um, and it's like, you're not there, but your awareness is fully manifesting. So there's not a sense of self that's separate from the activity of breathing. And yet you're not in oblivion like when you're sleeping and your mind is just in a state of complete dreamlike wandering. You're, you're completely aware, but, but you're not thinking. It's similar to when you're doing your favorite activity, say it's, you know, uh, playing basketball or hugging your daughter or something. Um, when you're doing those activities, which you love to do, you're not thinking, you're doing. There's no separation between you and the activity. You're doing them completely. Um, this, when we say practice, that's, that's the, we're, we're putting a principle into practice. So, um, and, and we're, we're manifesting that connection that I just talked about, or that, that pay, paying of attention, paying attention so fully and completely that the sense of self dissolves. And, and at that point, you're, you're putting into practice or manifesting some um, principles in Buddhism, you know, the primarily, primary one being anatta or, or not-self in, in that moment when the self dissolves. That, that's a lot of uh, lot, lot there. Do you, you can help me unpack that or we can go to the next question. Yeah, well, I've had moments like that, you know, whenever you pay attention to your life around you. I was talking to a Korean lineage Zen master, um, Ji Jong, and she and I were talking about how these split-second moments when you realize that you're completely connected to what's happening to you, like, those are teeny tiny little moments of awakening, and how everybody has these moments, but we often miss 99% of them because we are so lost in what's going on around us or we're worried about the next thing that we don't actually see these moments for what they are and they pass us by. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And so one of the reasons, and it's really easy to have these moments pass you by. In fact, it's really easy to just live a whole life where these moments are passing you by one after another and you're pursuing um, you know, everything from survival to love to your ambitions, um, and you're just distracted by the emotions and thoughts that are arising within you and all the whirlwind of activity that's on the outside of you, um, and you're never truly present. So Zen is, is this practice of rooting you in the present moment, grounding you or helping you find, helping you get plumb or balanced um, and helping you to open your eyes to the, what's actually happening instead of just being completely swept away by it, which was how we tend to live our lives. And I think when you do this, um, you, you don't need religion. Uh, you're, you're, you're a living embodiment of what I think many religions are trying to get across. So, you know, there's always a mystical tradition in all of the major traditions, whether it's Sufism and Islam or, or like some of the Gnostic or desert father strains of Christianity. Um, I think Buddhism is a whole tradition kind of devoted to that same thing. Right. So you mentioned uh, how we live our lives and we can pass up all these moments forever. So let's back up because um, going into a monastery is not um, something that a lot of people would consider in their lives. They will just be perfectly content to just flit these moments past them forever. So I know that you were a screenplay writer and a stand-up comedian before you went into monastic living, right? Yeah, that's right. So those that's not an easy lifestyle either, being a writer in Hollywood and trying to do stand-up com uh, comedy. I mean, that's 
so difficult too. So what was it that pushed you or encouraged you into this full-time monastic lifestyle where you're pursuing um, these moments of awareness and this attachment to our lives? Like what pushed you into that lifestyle? You know, I think I had studied philosophy in college. So I went to uh, University of Dallas, which had a a good, great books program. And it was a a Catholic school kind of rooted in the Western tradition. So um, I majored in philosophy and and I spent four years um, studying everybody from the the pre-Socratics up to Plato and Aristotle and then um, through the European Enlightenment tradition, right on up through the postmodernists. So, um, and I was kind of looking for a way to live. I was raised Catholic, um, but it was almost for me. It became more culturally Catholic. Um, the actual actually buying into what was being handed down from Rome here today as a way of life, uh, just didn't stick with me. So, you know, so I scoured the whole Western tradition for, um, wisdom, you know, and that process of, of reading and writing and thinking about, uh, the topics that these great philosophers brought up. I mean, it was, it was a fascinating process, but it, it didn't give me any wisdom. And I didn't know that at the time. Uh, but when I came to the end of my, my studies, I thought, you know what, I'm, I was, I was a writer and, um, I didn't want to keep going down that path. So I just decided to go to Hollywood. This is around the time of Pulp Fiction. And, and, you know, I tend to make really big decisions in life off the cuff. So (laughs) I thought I'm going to go to Hollywood and do stand-up comedy and, and work on screenplays and kind of like find myself through art self-expression um but it was a hard path i mean you know for a lot of different reasons um very monetized i mean art in hollywood is so monetized and commercialized um and you're not just sitting in a room writing a screenplay you're you're getting feedback from producers, actors, directors, your agent, your manager, your friends who are reading the script. It's, um, you know, it, it can be very draining and it can suck the inspiration out of you. So that, that after, you know, many years of being in that process, I met a Zen Buddhist monk and, um, you know, around that, time, I've been writing these screenplays about these young men who are on spiritual journeys, and and I had a little bit of time in between jobs to work on a script in that vein, and um, I came to the conclusion that I just had nothing to say. That um, I was, I had no experience to write from. Uh, I mean, I was on my own spiritual journey, but it was being thwarted by my own ambitions and kind of the hopeless uh, grind that, that that's being a screenwriter in Hollywood. Um, so the, I met this priest and he kind of, he, it's hard to describe, but he seemed to have what a lot of my teachers in college didn't have. I mean, it was like he'd come down from the mountain, started a sitting group and um, really seem to be the living embodiment of, of wisdom while having all his human flaws, which I thought was really interesting. And he seemed to be able to both explore his life, whether it's sexually or um, being interested in politics and art and, and caring for his family. So he seemed to have both best of both worlds. He was, he was not withdrawn from the, what we normally consider to be the stuff of life, and yet he was all, not also not sucked into it or attached to it or completely defining himself by what was happening in his life. So he's both fully in it and he had some distance from it. And and as I said that, you know, in Zen there's a principle and a practice. And I think what I was really looking for was a principle to live by. Uh, and 
and write about or write from. So I didn't want to just sit down and write these screenplays, you know, that have a beginning, a middle, and an end, and some sort of pat um, conventional truth in it. I wanted to actually say something, um, and and by everything I saw from what he was saying and doing, it seemed like he he was on to something. And so through him, I met his teacher, the the Roshi that I studied with at the monastery for. For, for 10 years. Um, and then one day I was sitting in the office at the Zen Center in Los Angeles and I'd left some writing notebooks there and I went to retrieve them and, and my mentor was sitting in the office talking to another monk and they were talking about how there was a retreat that was going on up at the monastery. And I mean, five minutes earlier, I hadn't thought this thought. I, I, you know, I thought I was just going to keep on going like the way I was going. But like in that moment, I knew that <clears throat> I was going to move to the monastery, live there for at least three years, get ordained, and that my mentor was going to move out and move into my old rent control department. I just knew it instantly. And then that's basically what happened, although I stayed longer than three years at the monastery. So you walk into the monastery and you're, you're moving in, okay? And so life inside a monastery, this is not something that most ordinary people can conceive of, I think, um, mm-hmm. especially not in our society. So I want to talk to you about some like some uh, nitty-gritty stuff about your first year of full-time monastic living. So you move in, and what happens the first morning that you're there? What happens, what's like the wake-up routine whenever you're in a monastery? It depends. I mean, there, so, so you've got a year, and the year is split into two halves, or actually four quarters. Um, <clears throat> there's, there's, it's called what's what, uh, Seichu and Seikan. So spring and fall are Seikan, and winter and summer are Seichu. And winter and summer, Seichu, are the formal training periods um, when the teacher is on the grounds and you're being trained um, uh, like hardcore. And then during Seikan, spring and um, fall, you're, you're – you get a chance to sort of digest what happened and process it a little bit. But so, so, and during within all these training periods, there are really intensified one week retreats. Um, so we'll start with the retreat. I mean, cause the retreat is, I'll, I'll give you a day in, in, in a retreat. Yes. And, yeah. And a retreat is basically, a version of what's happening during the formal training periods, which are slightly more um, uh, uh, gentle than a, a full-on <laughs> hardcore retreat, yeah. and then during the during the spring and um, fall, that's a slightly more gentle version of what's happening during um, the training periods. But anyways, so you're you're sleeping and. One of the Zendo officers called the Shoji will will flick on the lights in your cabin and ring a bell. So you've got uh, ten minutes to put on your robes and get into the meditation hall. So you don't wake up, brush your teeth, um, check your email, uh, you know, spend some time in the toilet with the newspaper. Like you're you're in the meditation hall in ten minutes. Um, so once you ed- enter the meditation hall, it's it's a practice space, and you're becoming one with the body of practitioners in there, and you're kind of leaving your personal self behind for for this time when you're in the meditation hall. So there's certain uh, certain way of comporting yourself. So you bow when you enter the meditation hall, um, and you have your hands in gasho, which is like the the namaste or the the praying position. You know, your hands are pressed together and you walk to your seat and you sit down um, and there's always forms. So, so, so you're always have an activity or something that you're supposed to be doing that you can put your mind on so that your mind just doesn't wander. So Zen, we're always putting the mind on what we're doing instead of letting it circle around within itself, thinking and trying to decide what you should do and, you know, um, it's pulling you into the moment. So we have tea, and then we go down and we do chanting in the sutra hall. Then we come back and sit and meditate in in the zendo meditation hall. And the 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 sits are about thirty five minutes long. Um, you could sit with your 
in a few positions, but mostly you you were – Rinzai Zen is pretty strict. It's um, known as Samurai Zen. So and we had a fairly traditional style of practice. So once you sat down and took your position um, in the meditation hall, then you were basically stuck in that position for 25 minutes. So our sits are 25 minutes long, and they're broken up with walking meditation um, or a resting meditation, which is about five minutes long in, in the Zendo. But it, it, no matter what, you're, you're, mo- most of your day is spent in these 25-minute meditation sits uh, where you can't move, um, and you're stuck, right? You're stuck. So I mean, my first meditation retreat, I hadn't done much actual Zen practice at all. Like I said earlier, I was looking for a principle. You know, I was looking for a philosophy. I was looking for some, some, some airtight, bug-free spiritual software to plug into my hardware. <laughs> um, but I hadn't actually done much practice. So here I am. I mean, these are 19-hour days, and all of them. All, every hour, not, I mean, 19, to, I mean, it's, it can be even longer than that sometimes. Um, uh, all of it is spent doing some version of formal practice with a group, except for like when you're in the bathroom or you're sleeping. And it's all done in silence for the most part. Um, so when, you, when you're sitting there on the cushion, I remember my first retreat, um, it, it's very interesting. I mean, it's like these these myths of of christ in the desert being tempted by the devil or or the buddha on the, the bode tree being having arrows flung at him by mara's army or mara's daughters coming to tempt him away your your mind goes nuts i mean and and so that's one of the big first lessons i got in zen was guess what like you have a mind i have a mind and all my life, I've listened to it. You know, what else do I have to go on, right? This is my mind. But when you sit down and you're forced in this disciplined, clear setting to just do nothing but sit there, you will see how much bullshit your mind throws your way, yeah. how, how, how active it is, how um, rootless and rudderless it, it can be. And, and you learn through trial and error um, that you don't have to listen to this mind. Like, you know, it's like a dog coming in and, and, or, or a child, you know, you, you, you don't have to follow it everywhere it tries to lead you because, because if you do, you run around in circles, especially if you're just sitting there on the meditation cushion, you can't do anything, you know, you, you you begin to realize okay there's a, there's a different there's a, I can orient myself a different way in this world so eventually after you you know f- at first the mind is just really uncomfortable with the physicality then of just sitting it's hard on your knees and it's hard on your back and it's hard on your hips so much of what's going on is you're just complaining to yourself about the situation then you you decide to toughen up gut it out and just sit. Now you get some of the deep psychological stuff that comes up. I mean, you can be mad at your girlfriend or or your parents for how they raised you, or you can get really pissed off about the political climate in America today. And you have all these fascinating, brilliant, beautiful thoughts and ideas. And you have all these these terrible, wretched, tragic, and painful thoughts and ideas. But as you sit, and don't move and maintain your focus on your breath. So the practice is to always keep returning to the breath. You begin to realize that these these thoughts, good or bad, these feelings, wretched or joyful, they come and they go. They're kind of like inner weather. They come and they go. They come and they go. They don't have solidity. They're, they're you know, there's, there's a tempest in a teapot in a sense. So maybe your third, fourth, fifth day of retreat, if you're lucky, and you, you're going through this process for the whole week, um, you start to have these moments where all those thoughts and feelings, they kind of dissolve, and you're, I guess you could say, at peace, but you're also completely connected. So you find yourself breathing in, and it's like you're 
breathing in the whole outside world. You're breathing in the entire situation. You breathe out, and it's like you're breathing out your inner world completely. You're offering it completely to the world. And and there's this connection between inside and outside. And there's not this thinking mind that's chattering away, trying to scheme and game and um, ultimately just separating you from that world. So it sounds like over time you you don't stop thinking, and I think that that's one of the misconceptions about meditation is that you're not supposed to think, but that it slows down and that you realize that you can be almost liberated from your own um, your own obsessive mindset. Does that make sense? Yeah, you don't stop thinking. I mean. There may be people out there who have, I, I doubt it, but there, I, actually, I, I don't think this is true. I, I don't think you ever stop thinking. The brain is an organ, and we don't understand how it works. We don't understand how consciousness arises. We don't really know ultimately what a thought is, unless you want to take a completely materialistic, reductionist point of view that it's certain neurons and chemicals and bolts of electricity inside the head, which is, has, I mean, it's like... Uh, what is it, like 80 billion neurons, maybe more? I mean, there's mm-hmm. a ton of activity up there. It's a very complex piece of matter. Um, but we ultimately don't know what thoughts are. And there is a misconception that you empty your head of thoughts. And that, that I, I that's crazy. Um, I mean, it's like trying to have one of the other organs in your body stop doing what it's supposed to be doing. The, the point is you don't attach to your thoughts so much anymore. You begin to develop a different relationship to um, to your thinking mind where it calms down. I mean, you begin to see through the stories you're telling yourself and, and um, the, the urgency that you're telling yourself those stories. And I also know that uh, – so one of the um, things that they'll tell you in like health in the world today is that uh, sitting is bad for us and that we need to be up and about more because that's what human beings are supposed to do. But so living in a Zen monastery, there's also some uh, vigorous and challenging physical aspects of it as well. Um, what do you do for activity in a day-to-day monastery life? Yeah. So during a retreat, we tend to sit a lot more. But there's the, so this is the one week long retreats. Um, outside of the retreats, but even within the retreats a little bit, we've got called what's called samu, which is work practice. So um, you got to keep the place running. So that means chopping wood, cleaning the bathrooms, cooking the food, um, taking care of of each other and the, the teacher. And in, in my case, my teacher was very old. Um, so yeah, it, it can be very vigorous. I mean, if you're the shoji who's who's one of the zendo officers um, during a retreat, you're you're going to be up at two o'clock in the morning if it's been snowing out there with your shovel, shoveling the the walkways and the stairs so that people can get to the meditation hall without slipping and cracking their skull. Um, so yeah, m- much of Zen life is very active. I mean, it's kind of funny. E- even when you're sitting, you're doing an activity. You know, you're you're breathing and 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 you're, it's very actually very visceral and very physical when you're doing it right. It's um, it's not sitting down and being in la la land on the cushion. Um, so so yeah, I mean, there's the whole Zen adage about chop wood, carry water. It's a very physical uh, way of life. And so I also know that um, there is a. And an emphasis on chanting in a monastery and in practice. And I know that to an outside perspective, whenever people might hear you say um, Zen isn't a religion per se, and then they see a bunch of people in a room chanting together to a tempo that might look religious. So I'm curious if you could talk just a little bit about what the purpose of the chanting is in a monastery or in a Rinzai center Um where people might go in any of their own cities. Yeah, you know, I would say try it for people. Um, it it does have a feel like when you you're right when you see people chanting in their robes, it feels an awful lot like religion. Um, the chanting that we do is in Sino Japanese, which um, 
which even if even the Japanese monks don't understand what the words are that are being chanted. I mean, it's sort of a uh, it's kind of a, a Japanese mispronunciation of a Chinese mispronunciation of a Sanskrit mispronunciation of original Pali texts. Um, my teacher used to say that you're 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 just you're you're manifesting space when you chant. Um, you're manifesting sound, and he said you it starts in the bottom of your belly. That's where you get your power, and you form the words in your throat, and they come out your mouth. So again, you're not calling out to invisible bodhisattvas or Buddhas or gods or anything like that and and asking for assistance or praying or something in, in, in the traditional way. Um, there's something powerful about saying it's it's like a, I mean it's, it's like chanting it's um it's it's a type of it's a type of practice now zen isn't a, a religion but it does use ritual mm-hmm. it does use ritual a lot um we do ceremonies for example where ritual is used and in many ways it it almost it's it's a way of sort of manifesting the teachings in a different manner so we chant sutras. So these are Buddhist teachings. So when we chant the Heart Sutra, which is a classic Zen text, um, you know, we're saying Kanji Zaibo Sagyo Jin Kengo. And it's funny because you're, it's kind of a nasally sound. You're opening up your nasal <laughs> passage. You're kind of chanting through your nose as well as your mouth, and you kind of feel it coming up from your belly. And it's almost like a it's just like a spiritual exercise almost. Um, and, and, you know, form is emptiness. Emptiness is form is one of the things we're chanting in this um, strange language. So you're, you're embodying the teachings in, in a different way. It's very powerful. It's hard to explain if you haven't done it. And at times it, you do feel like you're phoning it in and it does feel as, you know, like, uh, you know, some of the days I'd be sitting there thinking, I don't want to be doing this right now. This feels like, you know, when I used to be a kid in mass or something. Right. Yeah. So. I've, um, and I've been on a couple of retreats in a Korean center, uh, here in the Midwest. And I've also gone to some Rinzai groups because I like to experience as much as possible. And so I've actually done these chantings. I've done them in the Korean version and I've done them in the exact version that you use. And I have them little the little printouts in my hand. And it's amazing the way that the mind just latches on to those little syllables, those one and two syllable little sounds, and how um, it just dials you into a moment as well. Like I see it as like a moment of um, intense focus too, where I'm just, mm. just doing these these sounds and that's all there is to it. And that's just what I'm going to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can be, it's interesting. It can be, it's a different experience, and it's honestly, it's an experience we don't get a whole lot in this culture unless we're in a religion, in which case there's sort of this end game for the prayers or, or the chants where you're, um, you know, you're, you're direct messaging God, you know, yeah. um, instead of just making sound, manifesting sound. So I want to talk about your books a little bit as well. Is that okay? Yeah. Awesome. So um, I've read both your books, and they were uh, so um, painful but amazing all at once. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So your essay writing, you kind of had this style of showing you in a moment wrestling with your judgment of other people, whether it's like your parents or fellow monks or people on the highway. And then you lay out this like gut-punching lesson at the end of your chapters where you seem to learn that you are also like part of the problem and so you were like living in this misery where everybody around you is a problem and then you realize that you're also part of the problem and it's like a masterful uh writing strategy and it hits me every single time and I feel all these like emotions of grief and I feel connected to you in these moments when I do the same thing. I think about people that I have wronged, which is sort of like a theme in your own writing as well. So is your storytelling like a coping strategy for like the lousiness, which is a word that you and I were chatting about earlier, or like the unsatisfactoriness of life? Yeah, I mean, 
I, I like to, I don't know why, I'm drawn to writing about um, how I fail as a spiritual practitioner and how that's part of the practice and a manifestation of the some of the deepest aspects of the tradition that's going to go on long after I'm dead and was going on long before I was born. I mean, human beings are human beings, no matter how enlightened they may think they are, or other people may think they are, or they may be trying to be. I mean, we're still human. That's the form that we take. To be human means to manifest and have within you good and bad. I mean, that just seems to be the situation. And it's the relationship that we take to this situation, I think, that's important. Um, so, I mean, part of the, my writing strategy is to have conflict because that's how you move from, <clears throat> you know, you, you keep the reader hooked. Um, so, I, so I try and take moments from my life uh, where I was sort of overwhelmed and my practice seemed to be lost and um, I was failing uh, to be a, a good monk or a good person and then show how through that experience, something dies a little bit inside me, some illusion or idea or part of myself dies. And at the end of the pieces, if there's any insight, it's what's reborn in, in, from the ashes of that. Oh, man. Yeah, because like you have this like really effective way of like building up the anxiety where you are getting more stressed out in the chapter and I'm getting more stressed out reading it. And then you like unleash these floodgates of shame at the end and you realize ways that you've been judging other people and then I feel sh like ashamed as well as the reader because I've been judging the characters in the chapter with you so you and I are like on this same journey in your essays and I'm judging and I'm judging and I'm judging and then you hit me with this like 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 this left hook about why I am wrong for judging them too and it just beats me it beats me down like you're like i laugh and then i just feel these amazing moments of shame and growth as well at the end of the chapters good i i think yeah <laughs> yeah i mean one of the great greatest things for me in life is overcoming those moments when i'm judging and i'm wanting things to be a certain way especially people and they're not going that way and then somehow I'm able to make peace with it and see the humanity of the person. So, so this separation or these boundaries between us kind of dissolve. Um, and I see a person's humanity where before I just saw a problem. You know, it's beautiful. And you've got so many of these essays in these two books. And I want to talk about one because there's one that has just stuck with me and it has caused me anguish and also a lot of really great moments of thought as well. So I'm a high school teacher, and so I'm around 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds every day. Mm -hmm. So one of the moments that hit me in Zen Confidential in particular is when you were overseeing T-Bone as the kitchen Tenzo. And I know that we've messaged about this a little bit in our emails, but suffice to say, he was not easy, and you two had it out often. And you were angry with him. And but it seems that like the feelings of inadequacy also were welling up inside you along the way because you write a lot about your own failings. And that's exactly what happens to me in my own classroom when I'm frustrated because a teenager is not cooperating in some way and I'm judging and I'm judging and I'm judging in these moments. So problems and people will find you no matter where you are is my lesson, no matter where you are in the world. If you're in a high school classroom, if you're in a monastery kitchen on top of a mountain. So what have moments like this in and out of the monastery taught you about working with people? Yeah. yeah the, working with T-Bone was kind of like working with a kid. Um, and I think that could be... <laughs> I mean, I don't have kids, but I've been around around enough of them to know what a challenge they are. And I've been one myself, and I know what a challenge I was. But not even kids. It's also coworkers. But specifically in that case, it's someone that you have some responsibility for. And you have some responsibility for um, 
the two of you getting a job done, you know, basically when you're the boss in any situation, um, I mean, I would like to, there, there's no, so there's no easy answer to these situations. And that's what makes a Zen practice so interesting is, is when you're sitting on the cushion, sometimes you have these really profound openings and then suddenly you're out of the meditation hall and you're back in the real world. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, whether that real world is you're in the classroom with your students or you're in the kitchen, like I was cooking a meal for 40 people with a, um, a difficult, uh, shoten or, or, or assistant cook. Um, and you get these moments that come up where there's just straight up like a wall between the two of you. And it's like, you're speaking a different language and, you know, you're looking in the person's eyes and you, there's, there's nothing coming back at you, but evasion and aggression. Oh my um, God. I know that situation so well. <laughs> Yeah. What, what do you do in that? I mean, your instinct is to get this person on the same page with you. And sometimes it works. Um, and a lot of times it doesn't. And question is, what the hell do you do with that? The, it's a real practice at challenge. Um, I mean, I mean, you know, Zen is not an escape from uh, uh, the people in your life. It's making the people in your life and the situations you get in with them your practice. The best thing that I found during situations like that was to take a breath, to, to note the feelings that are coming up in me. So attention and awareness are pretty much the answer to everything. Um, and then, so, so, so noting what's going on. For me, it's usually physical. It's like checking in with my stomach, like not following a reaction and acting it out, but checking in with it in my body. So feeling, feeling how the person is landing on me. That's really important. And then, then you can find your center. And then cueing into some, the physical presence of the other person. And that means looking at their eyebrows and noticing the length of the eyebrows, actually taking in the color or the person's breath and how it smells, how they're holding themselves, feeling their energy, like actually becoming aware of the situation, getting a little bit of a distance from how the situation is landing on you and what you want from it and and just physically feeling it. Usually when I do that, a, sponta- a, a reaction to the situation will arise spontaneously. I mean, the situation wants to resolve itself. A re- a, you know, two people get together, and the relationship that they're in has a life of its own. And what's inside that person and what's inside you, they, they it wants to meet and find resolution. And it may not happen quickly, um, but if you force it, my teacher used to call this the conquering mentality. If you try and force it, you're you're usually either going to create more conflict or you're going to plant the seeds for more conflict down the road. Um, so, so what's been, again, what's been most helpful for me in this is really take a deep breath um, and not check out of the situation, but, but just get a little bit of distance from my own raging feelings and um, uh, intentions or, or agendas and then behave spontaneously. There's a lot of strategies in there that I can take directly out of this conversation um, at you know five, six in the morning where I am and into my, my work day today. So I'm going to be carrying these things with me for the next several hours, just so you know. So you, yes. you've had an impact on the day that I have, that I am yet to have. So I'm, uh, Really That's grateful for, for that feedback. You know, one, one, one thing I wanted to say, too, which um, I said earlier, you can find peace on the cushion, and you really can, but that peace doesn't last. You have to keep growing. 
And that's one of the hardest things on the planet because we want to find an end point, you know, especially as a monk. You wanted to find this point where you were no longer swayed by feeling or thoughts. Um, and you get into these situations like I was in with that difficult student in the kitchen and you realize, my God, they're pushing me right up to my edge. And, and when you find yourself on the edge, that is not an indication that your whole life um, your whole point of view on life is is false or that your practice is a joke and you're not enlightened. You're put in a moment where you have to grow. And, and human beings, we're always moving. We're always experiencing these little deaths and these little rebirths, always. I mean, from the Dalai Lama <clears throat> to the most miserable um, murderer on death's row. Everybody is being put in these moments of, of death and rebirth where some part of you in a moment that has to die, something that you're hanging on to, some idea or thought in that moment, it, it, it has to die. And um, what's reborn is, is I think, uh, truth and spontaneity. So when you're in those, like the instinct is to that, that you're doing something wrong or that the situation is bad, but really it's just a practice moment and a, a, a challenge and an opportunity to just die and be reborn. And that that's how you grow in your practice. And I think it's how you, you grow as a human being and, and live live your life the way it was meant to be lived. Yeah. And so I know that you're out of the monastery now, right? Yeah. So what is your post-monastery life like? How's your practice doing? My practice is good. It, you know, at some point you have to leave the Zen monastery. It's not like a, a Catholic monastery, for example, where you can stay there forever and just um, pray. Um, the way I was taught as a Zen monk is that you 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 go through the training, and then you have to return to what they call the marketplace or the world, um, and uh, bring your practice into the world. Um, it's it's interesting. It's it's I, I can get distracted pretty easily now. So for a while, when I got out, I was just periodically sitting um, when the spirit moved me or, or meditating, and and not every day. So I was just kind of doing things I hadn't done in a long time. I was getting sleep. Um, I was developing a, a social life. I've been doing a lot of traveling. Um, been doing a lot of writing that I wasn't able to really do in the monastery. Um, and now that I've been out for maybe seven, eight months now, I'm starting to realize, okay, maybe it's time to, to stop uh, coasting on the momentum of my previous years as a practitioner and start sitting down and having a disciplined sitting schedule again. So I've been sitting in the mornings, the evenings, and then, and then the afternoon. Um, and, it's a more personal practice now. I also work with a group and, and sit with a group, but it's it's way more personal now. When I was at the monastery, and, it's, you know, and I was training, and the monastery was you know, paying for my health insurance and my room and board, I was kind of the face of the institution. Um, and now I'm not. Now I'm just a guy out in the world. And it's been beautiful in the sense that I can sink into places that are more personal and I can feel the practice in a more personal way instead of this, instead of as this representative of the tradition. Um, yeah. Are you planning on starting your own center someday? Yeah, I will eventually, even if it's just a little sitting group. I got a couple people sitting on cushions with me. Um, I, I'd like to share the practice with people and sit with people. You should, uh, you should hit up our, our mutual friend and talk to him about what he does. I know that he would love to talk to you about the way that he's been running a local small group of a sangha of about 20 people for many years now. So you should uh, you should talk to him. Yeah, I did talk to him about it. He's, he's, uh, that's Sato Ray Ronson. He's, he's also a writer, which is great. So we've had a lot of great conversations about writing and Zen and um, 
most of the Zen groups, you know, Zen isn't like hugely popular right now. Mindfulness is pretty popular right now. And some of the Shambhala or Tibetan trainings are popular. And mixing meditation and yoga is popular. Just sitting and breathing, doing a little chanting and a little walking um, is less popular now. So you, you get a lot of monks and priests from our tradition who will hang their shingle somewhere and you get you know, 10 to 20, 25 people, maybe maybe 8 to 15 kind of core sitters. But you get a small group of people who want to um, go a little bit deeper in their meditation practice, and, and you, you, you build a tiny little community out of it. Yeah, it's really, uh, it's really kind of an amazing experience, um, especially for a person who's in like a small local setting like me. Uh, it's really interesting. So I'm, I'm wishing you all of the best on uh, getting your, you know, figuring out your, your path from here. It's just a wonderful journey that you're on, and I'm so grateful to you for spending this, uh, this hour with me today. Oh, it was it was my pleasure. I really appreciated it. I'm glad we finally got to, to, to hook up. We've been going back and forth at Twitter messaging each other for a while now. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad and, it happened. Oh man, and like it's been so good though, because I had the chance to sit with your books for a while. I had the chance to read them both. I had the chance to make copious notes. I had the chance to to feel what your books were putting out there. You know, I wasn't rushing them and they're so deep and I cannot recommend these books enough even for people who have never heard of zen because the lessons in them are just palpable and you will see yourself in these chapters and um especially for people who you know worry like am i doing well enough am is this good enough like if you ever ask yourself questions like that like zen confidential and single white monk are books for anybody even if you don't know a single thing about zen so i mean your audience is like it's a wide range that your books could reach. Yeah, you sound like the perfect reader. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. They are a pleasure. I'm so grateful. Um, so one last question. Um, do you think it's important for people to learn in religion about more than just the religion that they practice? Yeah, especially this day and age. I mean, it was important for me, and it's and it's still important to me now, Um you know, we live in a world where the boundaries between people and cultures and politics and religion are, are pretty thin. Um, you know, you, any community in America, just about, you're going to have somebody who practices mindfulness, somebody who's um, uh, Muslim and is, is doing their prayers every day, somebody who's Christian. And within the Christianity, you've got Catholics and Lutherans and Baptists. So we're all living together with, with uh, somebody who, who does not follow the same religion or spiritual practice that we do. And finding areas where it, I think it's really, really important. It helps unstick you from your own fanaticism and dogmatism and, and um, pride in your own system and helps you see where your practice uh, is universal and not limited to um, the the culture or the people that gave rise to your religion. Um, you know, they, I mean, I'm a big fan of of Joseph Campbell and and Carl Jung and this idea that you've got this pure strain of I don't know, mysticism or, or spirituality or spiritual truth or something. I don't know how you would put it. And it just branches off into these um, different different traditions that, that reach us in different ways. But they're all it's all essentially the same wisdom or the same truth. Uh, so it is good to learn about other religions and to, and to challenge yourself, to challenge your need to have a final truth, I think is really important. Especially in this age when people are fighting, they're they're getting um, we're we're all getting kind of uh, separated from each other, and we're living in our own private silos of information and belief, and um, it's creating parochial. It's funny because we're we're becoming more and more of a, a global culture, and yet in many ways we're becoming more and more parochial in our religious uh, and political beliefs and views. So yeah, get out there, talk to people, open up, and lighten up, and let down your walls and see what comes in. Shozan, thank you so much. I am grateful to you for our chat today, 
And I look forward to many more books. So keep those words coming, my friend. Okay, I will. Thank you so much. And and have a good day at school. Awesome. Okay, take care. Okay. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is performed and composed by Derek Striving. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you would like to support this show, please subscribe or leave a rating in iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.